2 Corinthians chapter 8 for our reading. And as I said, we're going to finish the subject of finance that we started last session. And to do so, we'll commence reading at verse number 16. But thanks be to God, which put the same earnest care into the heart of Titus for you. For indeed he accepted the exhortation, but being more forward of his own accord, he went unto you. And we have sent with him the brother whose praise is in the gospel throughout all the churches. And not that only, but who was also chosen of the churches to travel with us with his grace, which is administered by us to the glory of the same Lord and declaration of your ready mind. Avoiding this, that no man should blame us in this abundance which is administered by us providing for honest things, not only in the sight of the Lord, but also in the sight of men. And we have sent with them our brother, whom we have oftentimes proved diligent in many things, but now much more diligent upon the great confidence which I have in you. Whether any do inquire of Titus, he is my partner and fellow helper concerning you, or our brethren be inquired of, they are the messengers of the churches and the glory of Christ." Wherefore, show ye to them and before the churches the proof of your love and of our boasting on your behalf. For as touching the ministering to the saints, it is superfluous for me to write to you, for I know the forwardness of your mind, for which I boast of you to them of Macedonia, that Achaia was ready a year ago, and your zeal hath provoked very many. Yet have I sent the brethren, lest our boasting of you should be in vain in this behalf, that, as I said, ye may be ready." Lest haply if they of Macedonia come with me and find you unprepared, we, that we say not ye, should be ashamed in this same confident boasting. Therefore I thought it necessary to exhort the brethren that they would go before unto you and make up beforehand your bounty, whereof ye had noticed before, that the same might be ready as a matter of bounty and not as of covetousness. But this I say, he which soweth sparingly shall reap also sparingly. And he which soweth bountifully shall reap also bountifully. Every man according as he purposeth in his heart, so let him give, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loveth a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound toward you, that ye always having all sufficiency in all things may abound to every good work. As it is written, he hath dispersed abroad, he hath given to the poor, his righteousness remaineth forever. Now he that ministereth seed to the sower, both minister bread for your food, and multiply your seed sown, and increase the fruits of your righteousness. Being enriched in everything, to all bountifulness, which causeth through us thanksgiving to God. For the administration of this service not only supplies the want of the saints, but is abundant also by many thanksgivings unto God. Whilst by the experiment of this ministration they glorify God for your professed subjection unto the gospel of Christ and for your liberal distribution unto them and to all men. And by their prayer for you, which long after you for the exceeding grace of God in you. Thanks be unto God for his unspeakable gift. And that's God's word. We know God blesses it when we read it publicly and we trust he'll do the same this evening. Now this evening I want to emphasise the subject of giving in respect of how it is handled, the administration of giving. How we give 
and how what we give is handled appropriately in the context of the local church. Now, God's people have always given historically and continue to do so, and I think that is so because we are, and I think this is generally true, we are moved by an appreciation of God's generosity to us and out of gratitude for God's great gift of salvation and God's great blessings, it is a heart response of genuine believers to be generous and kind in return. That really is not so much in doubt amongst Christians. I think most of us have that experience that Christians, generally speaking, are generous and kind and giving. Christians, generally speaking, are hospitable. They open their homes. They give of their food and of their homes to other people. And you can go to Christians in all sorts of parts of the world and you'll find that to be true as I'm sure you have done. Even in a very limited way, when you go on holiday and you meet up with Christians that you go and you uh, meet on a Lord's Day, you'll find this, that very often offers of hospitality are extended to you, kindness is shown to you, and you're complete strangers. And that is a general uh, truism. There are probably exceptions to that, but generally speaking, that is true. And you would expect the same when people come to this locality or your locality, you probably do the same. You would extend kindness, you would open your home, you would meet need as you saw it and as, you were, as it's brought to your attention. So I would have to say that in my experience, generally speaking, Christians are kind and are generous. This issue this evening is not so much about that, but rather this issue is to know where to give, to know what to give and to know how to give. And how that ought to be handled appropriately within the local church. Now what Paul does here is, he is going to give some instruction for this particular circumstance. And his instruction shows us some very appropriate principles which can be applied not only to their circumstance and their particular giving to that particular need. But can I suggest to you, can be broadened out and we can see the wisdom of how Paul handles this particular situation. And that same wisdom ought to be applied into other circumstances, especially when handling finance. Now, the first thing to say when we come to this section is that we see the accountability that Paul brings to bear in respect of giving. Now, Paul has been answering issues which he anticipated as problems. For example, Paul has taught them that their giving ought to be according to the extent to which they want to give. It's not compulsory. It's not the tithe. It's not prescribed and Paul is not going to put some burden in the saints that they can't handle. So he has taught them that God would not burden them either and that their giving ought to be in accordance with what their heart desires, with what they want to give. It's not imposed upon them. No one's going to stand and make demands of them. That's not the way God operates and that's not the way God expects giving to be done in a New Testament church context. So it's not prescribed, it's not compulsory, it's voluntary, it's from the heart, and it's according to what we want to do as individuals. He has also answered a potential criticism when he stated that he would also not just give it to his friends. 
You remember he's coming from Jerusalem. He's from that background of Judaism and so forth. He's not just gathering up funds for people of his background. But there's an equity involved here. And that equity has already been demonstrated by him. And so he's not taking what little they had and giving it to enrich his friends. He's already dealt with that issue. There will be an equality. There will be a balance of resources within the body of Christ. The resources have all been provided by God. It's only a case of the believers balancing out the needs of others from the overflow that they have themselves. He is also, and we didn't mention so much of this last time, he has also answered a criticism that he is acting unilaterally. This is just his idea. This is just his thing. You know, it's like him coming to an assembly with a bright idea. No one else has the idea. No one else has heard of the need. It's just him and his big idea. And he wants all the churches to respond to him and his big idea. Now, he was an apostle. And he did have authority, but he doesn't bring that to bear. And that's not why he makes the request. And so he's already told them that Titus had the same desire put into his heart by God. And Titus was of the same mind as Paul. And so they were together in this. Paul and Titus. So it was not just Paul on his own. Now, we want to deal with another issue in this context that he anticipated being a problem and which can be a problem in terms of our giving. Will the money be used wisely? Will it be misused, mishandled? Will it be treated carelessly or carefully? Will there be accountability from those who handle it? to those who give it. These are issues that Paul anticipates as criticism and he's going to explain to them the answer to that criticism before even the criticism is made. And in this we can learn some lessons. Look then at verse number 18. So verse number 18, he says, We have sent with him the brother whose praise is in the gospel throughout all the churches. So, he's speaking about Titus, first of all. Titus is going to deliver this epistle, 2 Corinthians, after it's written, of course. And he's going to come, and he's going to come to them and help them with the collection until Paul gets there. But in addition to Titus, he's going to send another man who he just described as the brother. Now, the brother is unnamed. His name is irrelevant. Paul doesn't include it. It would have been pretty obvious to those who were receiving the letter in Corinth because he would have been standing beside Titus. So he is the brother. He's the man beside Titus. Or we're going to see one of the men beside Titus. So Titus is going to turn up and this other man's going to turn up and this man has reputation whose praise is in the gospel. He was well known. Easily identified recognized by them a man whose reputation preceded him whoever his his, whoever his name was now his reputation was associated with the gospel whose praise is in the gospel some have suggested he was a well-known preacher teacher of the gospel a kind of missionary evangelist we don't know but we do know that he was very much associated with the spread of the gospel in some way 
very prominent, unimpeachable as well. And he's sent with Titus to receive money and to transport money. And he has this reputation. Now you have two men, you've got plurality. You've got two godly men, two respected men, two men of reputation. And two men who are involved and who are desiring to be involved and, could I say, who are passionate about this issue, but men of character and reputation. Not all reputation is bad. Reputation amongst Christians is a good thing if it is a good reputation. You see, these churches would be foolish to give the care of their money to men of little reputation or character. For this was a large amount of money. We have the same principle back in the book of Acts in chapter 6. You see, it's not that the handling of money is some lower task, some less important task, some task that you would give to people of less character than some other tasks. But rather, as in Acts chapter 6, when there was an issue of money and the distribution of resources in the church, the instruction from the apostles was this, Look ye out among you seven men of honest report, full of the Holy Ghost and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. Look out men of character. Look out men of spiritual reputation. You're going to handle this. You see, handling anything for God requires spirituality and character. Handling money for God requires no less spirituality and character. How much disaster, how many disasters have come across Christian testimony because of the mishandling of funds and how the ungodly love to pounce upon this. People who've mishandled funds, misappropriated funds, or through carelessness or worse than that, deliberate sin have got into all sorts of bother with money and brought real scandal upon the testimony. Not here for he goes on in verse 19 and he says that this man was not only chosen by Paul and Titus but this man was chosen by the churches look what it says in verse 19 not that only but who was also chosen of the churches to travel with us with this grace that's the money which was administered by us to the glory of the same Lord and declaration of your ready mind this was not just Paul's choice this man had reputation, not just with Paul, not just with Titus, but with the churches. He was well known and well respected. And the churches must have suggested him or given him reference or recommended this man or agreed to this man taking this position. He's going to be handling money from the churches and these churches agree this is the sort of man we want to handle our money. Why? Was it that Paul could not be trusted? Well, no. Was it that Titus couldn't be trusted? That's not the point. It was that people cannot be trusted. And people cannot be trusted, whether you're Paul, whether you're Titus, is irrelevant. People who look on cannot be trusted to draw the right conclusions, to even righteous acts, and people, no matter who they are, ought not to be put into a position of temptation 
and of suspicion, and they also require to be protected. <coughs> Not just the money. So Paul needs protection. Titus needs protection. Protection from himself. Protection for his reputation. Protection from accusation. And so, this is wise. Paul, Titus, another brother. They're all going to be involved. Three of them now, all handling the money. You see the picture that's been built up? Someone put it this way. It is wisdom to put in place unbiased people appointed by the churches whose responsibility was to stick with the whole procedure and bring it to its conclusion. Wisdom. But he's not finished. So he says, we're administering this very conscious that it is for the glory of the Lord himself. You see, he saw this, some might say, some mundane task. You know, it's the idea of who's going to be the treasurer. Well, who does accountancy? You know, who's good at counting? Who does sums? You know, who's got, a, who's got a skill in that area? Is that the only qualification for handling the money of the local assembly? Far from it. Far from it. You see, a man could be very skilled in finance and yet spiritually immature and una unable to handle the situation as a result of his spiritual immaturity. You see, it wasn't qualifications required here. The qualifications were, were you good at finance? Uh, have, are you good at handling money? It was, what kind of character have you got? Are you a man of reputation who can be trusted to do a thing properly and spiritually conscious that you're serving the Lord as you handle this finance? So he says, we are administering this for the glory of the Lord himself. We do not want anything other than the attributes of the Lord to be displayed in the handling of finance. So righteousness and meekness and care and compassion, all these things, the attributes of Christ, should be manifested in the handling of this money. Lest any reproach fall upon the Lord himself who's been represented by these men. Verse 20, he articulates the possible problem. He says, we're doing this to avoid something. Avoid what? Look at verse 20. That no man should blame us in this abundance which is administered by us. So he says, avoiding this, the expression there is taking precautions. Taking precautions, why? That no man should blame us, that no one should discredit us in our administration of this generous gift. Now, in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, listen to Paul and how careful he is about these matters. In chapter 12 and verse 14 to 18, he writes this, Behold, the third time I am ready to come to you, and I will not be burdensome to you, for I seek not yours, but you. He says, I'm not after your stuff, I'm after you. For the children ought not to lay up for the parents, but the parents for the children. It's a bit painful, that, isn't it, parents? But nevertheless, there it is. And I will very gladly spend and be spent for you. Though the more abundantly I love you, the less I be loved. It's quite painful words, that. He says, the more I love you, the less you love me. The more I work for you and strive for you, the less you appreciate it. However... He says, but be it so. So be it. 
I'm still not going to burden you, he says, despite the fact that you don't appreciate it. I don't care, he says. I'm not going to burden you. Why? He says, I'm going to be crafty. Cute. He says, I caught you with guile. So they thought they were wise and smart. Paul says, I'm wiser and smarter. And the reason I did not burden you at the beginning, listen, he says, did I make a gain of you by any of them whom I sent unto you? He says, I didn't take any money from you. And those I sent to help you, they didn't take any money either. I desired Titus and with him I sent a brother. So there's Titus and another brother. And they came to Corinth. Did Titus make a gain of you? Did Titus take any of your money? No. Walked we not in the same spirit? Walked we not in the same steps? You see how careful Paul is in the area of finance. Because it is spiritual implications and an impact upon the walk of these believers. So he says, avoiding this, that no man should blame us in this abundance. The word is generous gift. It's the idea of a huge amount of money. Verse 21, providing for honest things. So this is how to avoid blame. Providing for honest things. Having regard for what is honourable is the idea. What is beyond question? What is beyond suspicion? So he says, we make sure that we think about in this matter what is beyond suspicion. And that's what we do. Providing for. That could be translated, we take into consideration. So he says, when we think about how to handle this money, in our thought process is this main idea. There must be no suspicion about the handling of this finance. None whatsoever. So we go to extremes. You say, well, providing for honest things. But notice he makes it even more extreme. He says, not only in the sight of the Lord, but also in the sight of men. So he makes sure that their conscience is clear before God. But that's not enough. He also wants to be above suspicion before the gaze of men. Now, somebody might say, well, as long as you act appropriately before God, who cares what people think? Well, Paul cared what folk thought. Because it matters greatly what the enemies of the gospel can see and what they can say. And unless they take action to deal with this in a way that removes all suspicion, then there is an opportunity for folk to cast, cast criticism and, and to bring an accusation which will harm the gospel. Romans 12 verse 17, recompense to no man evil for evil, provide things honest in the sight of all men. So you get the idea. It's not enough just to do the right thing, we have to be seen to do the right thing. So Paul is saying. So, for example, where's the practicality in handling finance in a local assembly? Very practical things. Don't have a checkbook with one signatory. There's one practical application of this. Make sure that when money is spent from the assembly, it's more than one person that spends it. Make sure that your accounts are audited so it's not just one person who has sight of the accounts and the bank statements from year to year. 
That's not healthy. That's not good. That's not putting into practice what's being taught here. But when we handle the assembly's money and it's an onerous task for whoever has the responsibility, not an easy thing to do. But they ought to be protected from any suspicion of mishandling finance by a proper system in place amongst the saints that is accountable to the whole assembly. So accounts should be published, audited. There should be checkbook with more than one signatory. There should be transparency when money is counted. Double signatories when money is counted. For example, the offering that's taken up on a Sunday, don't just have one person count it and bank it. That may be righteous before God, but before the gaze of men it's not. It's an opportunity for suspicion and accusation and it's not good for the person in the position of doing it and it's not good for the rest of the assembly either. That's the practical import of what's being taught here in the handling of finance amongst the saints. And you can take that out beyond that if you see the principle that's at play. <coughs> but he's not finished yet in verse 22. So he says, I just want to tell you that we've got another layer of accountability on top of this. So three are not enough. Here's a fourth man. So he says, we have sent with them, that's Titus and the brother, another brother. Here again is nameless. So we have sent with them, referring to those previously mentioned, our brother. Now, our brother has this qualification in verse 22, whom we have oftentimes proved diligent in many things. So he's a third member of the delegation. Paul, and then you've got this delegation. You've got Titus, you've got the brother whose reputation was in the gospel, and then you've got this brother who has been proved repeatedly to be reliable and diligent and zealous. So he's been tested by the assembly in so many different ways and different times and has proved himself to be reliable. He is diligent, he's zealous, he's passionate. He's not someone that you've got to drag, kicking and screaming into this task. He'll step forward instead of stepping back. And there's something to be done for the Lord. And he will be part of this enterprise. So you've got Titus. You've got the brother whose fame has been spread throughout all the churches because of his association with the gospel. You've now got another brother, many times tested and found to be zealous and committed to this. What you have in effect then is very, very careful accountability. Now you've got four involved in the whole thing. Four with big reputations. This is such a critical issue here. You're transporting funds from one area of the world to another physically transporting them. This is not a bank wire transfer or something like that. You're physically carrying this money. The opportunity for problems were many. They could be robbed. All sorts of things could happen in the journey. These men have to have big reputations to handle this. So he sums up this little financial committee, if you like, in verse 23. Now he says, here's the credentials. If any of you inquire of Titus, so any of you want to know about Titus, I'll tell you about Titus. He's my partner and he's, a, he's my fellow worker concerning you. So there's his qualifications. Paul says, I vouch for Titus. He's my partner and he's also a worker alongside you. Then he says, or our brethren be inquired of. So as any of of these other two men, this is their qualification. They are messengers of the churches and the glory of Christ. 
So these brethren, these two men that have been referred to, one whose reputation was the gospel, the other who had been tested and tried so often, they are apostles of the churches. They are messengers of the churches. Now when you come to the word apostle, as it is here in the original, you need to divide up the use of the word to its kind of official use in relation to the 12 apostles who were unique. The word apostle just means a sent one, someone who's been sent. The twelve apostles were unique because they were sent by the risen Christ, personally. The qualifications was they to be eyewitnesses of his resurrection, and they were commissioned personally by the Lord Jesus to be witnesses of his resurrection, and the church was built upon the, the foundation of their teaching. Here, there are apostles, but they're not apostles of Christ, they're apostles of the churches. They've been sent by the churches. They've been commissioned by the churches to go with Paul and Titus to secure the money and to bring all the way to Jerusalem. He says, you can trust these men. You can trust Titus. And you can trust these men that come with Titus. Why? Here's the greatest commendation of them. They are a glory to Christ. They have all the commendations that you could get in your life that would sit just about the top of any list for a Christian. Someone looks at you and says, they are a glory to Christ. They bring glory to Christ by their holiness, their virtue, their commitment, their obedience. They honour the Lord Jesus. They glorify him. They display him. And in so doing, bring honour and glory to Christ. You see, those who bring Christ glory will never bring his church shame. So they can be trusted. They will never shame the church. They glorify Christ. So verse 24, here is the conclusion in respect of this section. Wherefore, he says... This is what to do when they turn up with this letter. Show ye to them and before the church is the proof of your love and of our boasting on your behalf. In other words, listen, we've given you all this instruction. We've commended the men who are turning up to get the money. Give and give voluntarily. Give according to the proportion of what you possess and your resources. Give to actually complete the promise that you made a year ago. Give under the leadership of godly men who are involved in your local assembly. Give trusting the integrity of those men who will take the gift and transport it to Jerusalem. Therefore, give and do it openly before the churches with confidence. Confidence in the spiritual value of what you do and how it will be handled. Let the churches see the proof of your love. And so, as you go into chapter 9, he expresses confidence that they will do so. Now, I'm not going to speak in the first five verses. I'm going to skip them because he's just reiterating this and he's expressing his confidence that they will do this very thing. But I want to come to verse 6 as we move down and spend a little time here because after he said all of that, it's as if he's not quite satisfied. Just in case they need a little more encouragement. He brings a very old biblical principle to bear. And this is what I want to leave with you this evening. These verses particularly. 
Here is an old biblical principle which has been misused by the prosperity, health and wealth gospel and badly misused. If you've watched any of the American TV evangelists or, dare I say, Hong Kong, Singapore and these areas as well, you get them, you'll find this, that they use these verses and this terminology extensively. They talk about sowing seeds all the time. Sow a seed. What they really mean, mean is send a check. Sow a seed, send a check. Now, actually, they're pretty close to what is being taught here. The error doesn't come in that use of the terminology. The error comes in applying it in that God will then return finance to you. And again, that's not a misuse of these scriptures. But it's what you're going to do with that finance that comes back. So it's not a complete um, misuse of the context, but there is a very, very vital aspect that turns the outcome of this teaching in the prosperity gospel in a completely unbiblical way. Let's just look at this. There is an old principle, Proverbs 11 verse 24, there is that scattereth and yet increaseth, and there is that withholdeth more than is meat, but it tendeth to poverty. He used to hear ministry and this kind of thing a lot. So he says, just to put it in plain language, there is that scatters, gives away, and yet increases. There is that holds on more than is right and ends up poor. That's a biblical principle. Luke 6, verse 38. If you like your southern gospel singing, then you've probably sung this. This is where it actually comes from the Bible, believe it or not. Luke chapter 6, verse 38. Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over. And you could put it this way. They will pour into your lap, for by the standard of measure it will be measured to you in return. Give, and it will be given to you. Now don't spiritualise that, for Paul doesn't. We're going to see that Paul is speaking strictly in the context of material things, finance and possessions. So he says... In verse number 6, mark this, But this I say, He which soweth sparingly shall also reap sparingly. He which soweth bountifully shall reap also bountifully. Now you might say, well hold on a minute, as a reaction against the health and wealth prosperity gospel, it surely doesn't mean that if you give a lot of your resources, you'll get a lot back. That's exactly what it means. That's what it says and that's what it means. There is no need to spiritualise this away. Paul doesn't. We will see that that taken out of context means I'm going to give, and it's taught this way, I'm going to give an awful lot so I get an awful lot back for my good to spend on me, to increase my circumstances. That's where they go wrong. But in the initial point, it is correct. So sparingly, reap sparingly. So bountifully, Reap bountifully. It's a basic principle which is the opposite of any economic system in this world. You look at this big issue going on in our country. 
as to whether to spend our way out of poverty or save our way in cuts and out of poverty. Some of you smile because you're using that, but the biblical principle here is clear. Not to spend your way out of poverty, but to be generous and not to be mean. So bountifully, you will reap bountifully. So sparingly, you will reap sparingly. God is saying plainly, you will receive more resources from God if you give more to God. You see, the basic principle is this. It's a lack of generosity that impoverishes Christians and Christian churches. A lack of generosity. Not an over-generosity. He takes the farming axiom and he says this, so reap. Think about the farming picture. The size of the harvest is in direct proportion to the amount of seed sown. So the farmer's approach to sowing the seed is tied to his expectation of the benefit he gains. If he sows a little, he gets a little back. If he sows a lot, he gets a lot back. That's the principle. So that, someone wrote this, when you hold back fearing loss, you forfeit gain. When you give everything trusting God, you receive a huge harvest. That's the axiom. That's the principle. Now you say, well, does this appeal to our greed and selfishness? Should that be a motive for giving? Well, follow it through. Don't take the verse just out of context. Follow it through and see what Paul's got to teach us about this. Look at verse 7. He tells us that God has a special love for generous givers. Now, God so loved the world. God's universal love for all mankind is clearly stated in the Bible. Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. Christ has a special love for his own. But God has a special love for those who give bountifully and cheerfully. That doesn't mean we're a smile, but we're going to see what that actually means in a second. So God has a special strong affection for those who give generously. Now every one of us can be in the good of that love. (coughs) Or not. Now what is a cheerful giver? Well, it's really just chapter 8 and chapter 9. Someone who gives according to the heart's desire, someone who gives proportionately, someone who gives voluntarily, someone who does so from a willing heart. That's the cheerful giver. You don't need to be, I know it's from the word hilarious, but you don't need to be giggling as you write the cheque or put the money in the bag and, you know, that kind of idea. It's not hysteria that's in view. It is rather this, the cheerful giver is someone who gives... And gives willingly and joyfully and appropriately and proportionately and gives not out of compulsion. God is a unique love for such a person. God loves a cheerful girl. Now, follow it through. Because God's love is always expressed in giving his grace... He goes on in verse 9 to say, And God is able to make all grace 
abound toward you. Abound towards who? The cheerful giver. God so loved the world that he gave. God's universal love is seen in the gift of his son. Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. Christ's love for the church marked in his giving of himself to the church. The cheerful giver is the recipient of divine love, unique love that God reserves for those who are generous in their giving. And his grace is this. Verse number eight. God is able to make all grace. Now, do you believe that God is able to do this? That's the test. That will determine whether you open or shut your wallet if you believe that God is able or not able. God is able to make what all grace abound toward you. He is able to be generous to you. He's able to give to you that ye always, having all sufficiency in all things, may abound to every good work. Now, it could read this way. Subtle difference, but it could read this way. God is able to make all grace abound to you that always, having all sufficiency in all things, you may have an abundance for all good deeds. Do you really believe that when you give generously, God recompenses generously in order for you to continue to give generously that's the principle giving away can be absolutely foolhardy if you do not understand God's ability to recompense you see don't spiritualize this because the farming axiom doesn't allow us to what you reap in a harvest is from the same seed that you sow it's the same character if you sow wheat, you get wheat. Sow material things, you get material things. Sow money, you're recompensed and replenished by God. Why would he do that? So that you have sufficient to continue to be the cheerful giver. So we put it this way. The giver always has plenty to give. As regularly as the resources of the cheerful giver are taxed by his generous giving, they are replenished by divine grace. I don't know if you've ever thought about that. That the generosity of someone is marked by God and God entrusts more of his resources to that person because of what they'll do with them. If I'm a stingy sort of person, I'm going to keep it for myself. I'll find this, that God is not so quick to give the resources to me because I won't handle them properly for him and I found in my experience it's not always rich people who are generous in fact generosity has very little to do with our position economically those with vast wealth can be generous those with little wealth can be generous but what I know is just this generous people usually are not just generous on a one-off basis it's a habit, it's a way of life, it's a lifestyle, it's a character that they possess. And how, if you're generous, will you still have enough resources to be generous again? Because God, according to this verse, will enable you to continue to be generous by replenishing your resources. Do you believe that God is able? That's what it comes down to. If you don't, you won't give. If you do, you will give. Not in the health and wealth prosperity, prosperity gospel to enrich yourself. 
Not to raise or change your economic standing. But rather, for example, if you're someone who passes on a £10 or a £20 here and there, or if you're someone who's got such sufficient wealth that you can send tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of pounds away, really to God it doesn't matter. Because you're giving proportionately. And you'll find this, if you're in the habit of giving someone a £10 or meeting need in that scale, you'll find that usually you're able to do that. God will enable you to do that. And if you're at an economic level where you're able to spread resources at a different sort of level, you'll find this, your generosity will actually find yourself being able to be consistently generous at that level. So it's not to change your economic standing, but it's to continue your generosity. And God will enable you so to do. This removes the fear that lies at the heart of all of us when we give. What happens when you give? I mean, if you give it away, it's gone. And you've got needs and things, and what happens if you give it? What's going to happen? Do you and I believe that God is able. That's what it comes down to. Do we believe that? Notice he says that he will abound toward you so that you will always have all sufficiency. Now the idea of sufficiency means contentment. It means to have enough. It's not saying that God's going to make you rich because you gave someone a tenner and suddenly you know, you're going to be you know, next, you know, this whole ridiculous thing, you know, he's so £10 and £100,000 cheque comes through your door. I've never understood these adverts, really, but, you know, I, they're fascinating to watch when you're in the States anyway and someone is saying this. I got a cheque through my $100,000 and only gave $30 to that preacher and suddenly this came through the door. That's actually stuff that you watch. It's unbelievable. Now, that's just an abuse of this and it removes the credibility of this teaching. That's not what the teaching's all about. God is not saying, the apostle's not saying, listen, you suddenly are going to be vastly wealthy because you give proportionately from what you have. But rather this, it means that God will enable you to have sufficient to continue to give. Doesn't say how often. Doesn't say how much. It's not the point. But as opportunity arises and you have resources and then you'll find this, that, you know, your heart's desire to be generous to people, you will find over time, that again, you have got sufficient resources to show that generosity again. It won't be every week. It, won't, it doesn't, that's not the point. So he says this, a sufficiency. Why? So that ye may abound to every good work. You will have sufficient to do good works. You'll be given by God what you need to meet the demands of your generous heart so that you're able to do every good deed you desire to do. God will replenish your supply. Someone wrote this, when God finds a giver. And let's be frank, to this extent, there's not many amongst us. Our heart fights against that with selfishness and, and all that kind of thing. And I suppose we're all the same. And we've missed opportunities to give and to help just because we've been selfish and afraid to give. We missed it. When God finds a giver, a generous giver, 
This writer says he sets an unusual element of his affection on that generous giver and keeps replenishing in abundance because he knows the heart of a giver is going to continue to give. Now, he restates in verse 9 to 11. I'm not going to go down these verses in detail. He's restating these truths as, as he goes down this chapter. And he will teach them that God is glorified by their generosity. And if you look at these verses, you'll see that the reception of their generosity brought glory to God. You know, when God was not just glorified by the heart of the giver, God is glorified by the heart of the recipient of the gift. Because praise goes upward and God is glorified and thanked for this generosity that's been displayed by his people. So God is glorified by he who gives and God is glorified by he who receives. So it says in verse 13, they glorify God for your professed subjection unto the gospel of Christ. You know, there was a wonderful kind of um, subtlety here by Apostle, the Apostle Paul. Here's this conflict between Jew and Gentile. And here's the Jews who usually took the kind of spiritual high ground and the Gentiles who usually take the spiritual low ground. And it's the Gentiles who are meeting the needs of the Jews. And you know, it was going a long way to removing that cultural barrier. The Jewish Christians, Christians of the Jewish background were looking at this money and they were thinking, you know, these are, these are people that naturally we would have despised and look, they're, they're sending money to us and they're meeting our need and, and it's obvious that the Gospels had an impact on them and so more glory has been brought to God. God is glorified in every way. And then his most powerful argument, if you like, for the giving finds its expression in the last verse. If we need any more, he says, thanks be unto God for his unspeakable gift. And suddenly all our giving and all our pride and all our self-exhortation and self-congratulations and all how pleased we are with what we have given suddenly just kind of disappears. But we're reminded again of God's unspeakable You know, the fact of the matter is, if I was to give every penny I had, every minute I had, every article of or possession I, I owned, if I was to give up all the relationships I had, the joys, the pleasures, the pursuits, everything, if I was to give everything, I still could not come close to this unspeakable and it puts it all in context, lest our hearts be lifted up with pride when our hand opens in an offering. Cannot be. Let's not be pleased with ourselves when we give. Let us understand this, that we live in constant debt to the one who gave his unspeakable gift. And all we do to God is return to him a proportion of the resources he has already entrusted to us. Trust that that might be a help to us and a blessing. Let's just pray.